A series this morning, a three-week series that Tim and Dick and myself will be sharing in together on the miracles of Jesus. And uh, this morning we read from John chapter 20, where it told us a little bit about what miracles are about in the first place. This evening we want to read from Mark chapter 2, which recounts uh, a miracle where Jesus uh, causes the paralytic to get up and walk. Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. So so many gathered there that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus, and after digging through it, they lowered the mat the paralyzed man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. And he got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. This is God's word. Well, having just come through the Christmas season, you can't help but realize that we live in a culture of consumers. That is, we're absorbed with meeting our immediate needs, and we're absorbed with thinking about our immediate needs and finding any way possible to fill them. As a matter of fact, we're so adept as a consumer society that we have people who go out there and create needs even before we feel them in order that they eventually might be filled. I've been playing basketball for years, and I never knew I needed a pair of sneakers that have pumps in the tongue, until they created sneakers with pumps in the tongue, and then I realized that I had to have a pair of those sneakers. Didn't feel the need before, but once they were on the market, I realized I wasn't going to be able to jump as high unless I got a pair of sneakers with pumps in the tongue. And the list could be multiplied. Now, I try and stay out of bookstores and record stores more frequently than I have in the past because with all those books around and all those records around, I figure I need a lot of those things. They wouldn't have been written. They wouldn't have been recorded if there weren't people that needed to hear those things. That's our society. It creates needs, and we long to have those needs fulfilled. Of course, one of the things that takes place is that as the number of needs are manufactured, we actually lose our ability to distinguish between what are genuine needs and what are merely wants. We lose our ability to tell the difference between the two, and we respond to what makes the most noise. That is, whichever need is creaking the loudest or groaning the loudest, we go out and seek to have that fulfilled. And yet, Our hearts so often deceive us along those lines. 
the things that we thought we needed, as soon as we go out and have that need satisfied, we realize it didn't satisfy us at all. As a matter of fact, in a number of circumstances, it's just left us feeling more empty, if not brought harm to us. I'll tell you what we need. What we need is the ability to distinguish between our needs. That's what we need. And Jesus, in this passage, enables us to do that. What he tells us here is that our chief need, that your most foundational need, is forgiveness, whether you know it or not. This morning we said that miracles, above all, their task is to point us to Jesus, to tell us what he's like, what his character's like, what he's come to accomplish, and what he's going to do. And in this passage, the miracle that Jesus performs tells us that he has the authority to forgive sins. And that's what he's come to do, to bring forgiveness. And as we examine this passage, we learn our need for forgiveness, we learn the meaning of forgiveness, and we also learn the reality of forgiveness. Those are the things that we want to look at as we make our way through the passage. The need for forgiveness that this passage shows us, the meaning of forgiveness, and also the reality of it. First then, the need for forgiveness. Set the stage. Some of you have been in churches before, have maybe heard this passage many times. It's a common passage. Jesus is in his hometown city, and a crowd is gathered at his home. Probably wasn't his home, actually. It was probably the home of uh, Peter's mother, but it's what he called home, and he's inside teaching. We're not sure why the people came, maybe out of curiosity, maybe to be healed, but what he's doing is bringing a word to them. He's teaching them. And four friends arrive with a paralytic on a mat, a guy whose situation is obviously fairly desperate, even in that it takes four people to move him. And they see the the situation set before them, they realize there's no getting in the front door. And so what they do is they take the ladder up on the roof and they try to dig a hole through the roof. Now, a roof in that land would have been made with a number of wooden beams first laid down and then a number of other uh, pieces of wood stretched in the opposite direction along those and then packed with mud and clay up to about a foot deep and then tiles would be put on top of the roof. And it was fairly easy, actually, to assemble and probably fairly easy to take apart. But what a scene it must have been. Here they are, digging through the roof, a foot of earth, all crumbling, probably, down upon Jesus and the crowd that's listening to him as he speaks. And then suddenly, from above, the paralytic is lowered down right in front of Jesus. What a bizarre scene, but not nearly as bizarre as what Jesus utters to him. Because you'd have to say, at first glance, it's the most inappropriate thing that could ever be uttered. Your sins are forgiven. Son, your sins are forgiven. Here's a guy, four guys above, probably sweat dripping from their brow. They've lowered their paralytic friend in front of Jesus, and all Jesus can say is, son, your sins are forgiven, and he seems prepared to let it go at that. You wonder what the paralytic was thinking. Maybe he was overjoyed at that pronouncement. I don't doubt that he probably was, but 
you must think that at least on first uh, entry before Jesus, he was hoping for something different. Hello, Jesus, did you notice? I can't move my arms and legs. I wasn't really after the forgiveness of sins. I'm looking for you to do something about my physical condition. And all Jesus says is, son, your sins are forgiven. And again, maybe that set the man's heart on fire right then and there. He said, okay, guys, my sins are forgiven. Pull me back up. But maybe he was still waiting for something more. And maybe his friends were amazed at those words as well. Son, your sins are forgiven. Maybe they said, we always knew that this religion stuff was helplessly out of date that it was helplessly irrelevant, that it was out of touch with reality. And that's the way a lot of people feel about religion in our own day. Say, well, peddle forgiveness as much as you want, but that doesn't really seem to be what the world needs. There seems to be a lot greater things calling for our attention. The church, as far as most of the world can tell, offers a great solution to a problem that no longer exists. That is the problem of sin. It's as if someone invented, manufactured a needle for a turntable that never wears down in our own day and age. And people said, oh, by the way, did you realize very few people are making vinyl records anymore? Or a different metaphor along those lines. It's as if a garage was developed, a mechanic's garage, which had the best material, the most up-to-date material, but all they serviced was Edsel's. A non-existent car. One that's been out of order, out of service for a long time. And that's the way that people look at the church oftentimes. We have a great solution to a problem that no longer exists. Sin has been explained away. People say, we don't believe in that anymore. Now, there used to be a day when we believed in sin, but we've come to realize, we've evolved beyond that. We've grown up to realize that sin only arose when we had false standards brought upon us by our parents and the cultures from beyond them, which told us that there were certain ways that we had to behave. But we know that guilt is an unhealthy thing nowadays. Freud said it himself. Freud said that anyone who feels guilt is sick mentally. That it's a pathology to feel guilty. But maybe Jesus knows something that we ourselves don't know and that we've blinded ourselves to. That is, that we feel guilty, not because it's a pathology, but because we are guilty. And it's important to distinguish between those two things, between feeling guilty and being guilty. A lot of people look at guilt just as something subjective, just something you feel. But the scriptures say guilt is something objective. That is, it's something that you are. The opposite of guilt is innocent. You're one of the two. And then the reason that you feel guilty arises from the objective reality that you are guilty. Now, of course, people can feel guilty for things they shouldn't feel guilty for. And people can also have no guilt when they ought to have plenty of it. But guilt itself, the feelings of guilt, appropriately respond 
and correspond to the fact that we recognize that there are genuine standards that we break. And every time that we say, every time that we shout out, that's not fair, or every time we say or get angered when we see injustice being done, or when we see another person harming another person, we give testimony to the fact that we believe there are real standards, that there are absolute rights and wrongs, and that we fall short of them. Now, guilt can sometimes be nothing more than a nag at the back of the head that always troubles you, that always takes a little bit of joy out of any event that you experience, but guilt can also be quite debilitating, quite paralyzing. One uh, head of an English mental hospital, a large English mental hospital, is quoted as saying, I could dismiss half of my patients tomorrow if they could be assured of forgiveness. I could dismiss half my patients tomorrow if they could be assured of forgiveness. A lot of us carry a lot of baggage around. A lot of us are paralyzed by guilt. And we don't get it dealt with. And it drags us down. And it takes the joy away from our lives. It takes the life right out of our lives. What we desire is a fresh start, a new beginning. Forgiveness A non-necessity? No. It's deeply necessary. And by making that statement in full view of a man who obviously has some other very legitimate and real needs, but even greater than the need for healing, Jesus makes clear here, is our need for forgiveness. Now, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't desire healing. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't pray for it. It's a legitimate thing both to ask for and to desire. It's a great thing when it's received. But it's not the most important thing. It's not the crucial thing. The most important thing is hearing the words, son, daughter, your sins are forgiven. Now, I suppose that some might say that Jesus utters those words because he thinks that the reason the man is paralyzed is because his sin has led to his paralysis. And certainly there are situations where we can say that there are psychosomatic uh, diseases, disorders, in which actions a person has engaged in has led to all sorts of problems in their physical bodies. But Jesus hints at no such connection at this point in time. He doesn't lead you to believe that the reason this person is paralyzed is because of his sins. See, that's a non-Christian answer to the problem of evil. It's a non-Christian answer to the problem of suffering. A lot of times we want to try and work out some correlation on some kind of one-to-one basis between an action that we've engaged in and something that we're enduring, a disappointment or a suffering that we're going through, but Scripture doesn't encourage us to think that way. The book of Job blew that kind of thinking out of the water a long time ago. Now, while there are at times, of course, certain consequences that we suffer for certain sins, and at times those are quite obvious, usually we can't find the causal connection between something we've done and something that's happened in our life. And we frankly aren't encouraged to look for it. Not too deeply anyway, because a lot of it's mysterious. It escapes us. We don't know why suffering comes into our life. 
We can't always be sure that there was something that we've done that if we hadn't done, we wouldn't be going through the suffering or the disappointment that we're experiencing. Scripture doesn't encourage you to think that way. And you lay upon your own shoulders entirely too much baggage when you begin to do that. And that's not to say that sin and disease aren't related to one another. As I read the Scriptures, I think it's clear that if there had been no sin, there would be no suffering. There would be no disease. That is, mankind in our rebellion against God, not only did in doing that we get a sinful nature, that is, did we become anti-God in our orientation, but we also brought a fall upon the whole created order as well. A sphere, if you will, of withering decay has entered into the universe because of mankind's sin. And if there were no sin, well, there would be no sorrow, no sadness, no sickness, no suffering, no death. But we live in a world of sin, and Jesus knew that. And while this paralytic had paralysis, and Jesus knew that was a problem, Jesus also knew he had an even deeper problem. And he deals with that greatest problem first, the problem of sin. What is sin? Well, sin is that energy within us, if you will, that enslaves us to God-defying and self-gratifying behavior. It has at its heart a desire, again, as it were, to crawl up under the ribs of God so that we take his place. We decide that we'll call the shots that we'll be dependent on no one else, that we'll give our allegiance to, to no one else, that we live only for me, that we're the master of the universe. Sin is also the moral equivalent of a sheep in wolf's clothing, of a wolf, excuse me, in sheep's clothing. That is, it portrays itself as good, as something attractive, something that we need, something that's a necessity of life. And yet, as soon as we've engaged in the behavior, we realize that's exactly what we didn't need. It's taken away our joy. It's harmed us. It's done damage to us. And not only has it brought damage to our lives, most importantly, it's brought us underneath the wrath and the judgment of God. And so you see, a diseased body is a bad thing, but it only lasts for a lifetime. A diseased soul lasts for an eternity. And when you realize the destructive capability, the destructive consequences of sin, you realize that as important as it might be for you to be healed, that that pales in comparison to your need to have your sins forgiven. And here is Jesus offering just that. Because, see, once you have the knowledge of your sin forgiven, you have what's most important, and the things that are most important can't be taken away from you. No one can take them from your grasp. The things that are most important, communion with God, a deep-seated joy within your heart, genuine freedom. And if you're not forgiven and therefore not restored to fellowship with God, which is at the core of our humanity, which is what we were built for, then no matter how beautiful you might be on the outside, no matter how well things might be going, on the inside, Scripture says, you're empty. You're just a shell that's empty on the inside, devoid of substance, devoid of what's meant to be 
at the core of what you were created to be, a flourishing and vital relationship with your own creator. So forgiveness is a great need. But second, Jesus teaches, his, teaches us in this passage, and Mark teaches us in this passage, the reality, not merely the reality of forgiveness, but the meaning of forgiveness, what it entails. Because you see, as soon as Jesus pronounces these words of forgiveness, suddenly the teachers of the law get up in arms. They start to mumble to themselves. They start to calculate. They say, who is this person and why is he saying these things? He's blaspheming. Doesn't he know that God alone can forgive sins? Who can forgive sins, they say, but God only. And you see, as hard-hearted as the Pharisees and the teachers of the law might have been, they understood some things about forgiveness. And one of the things that they understood is the only person who has the prerogative to forgive another individual is the person who the offense has been committed against. You know, if Scott Sherman were to walk in here right now and jump up and down on my foot six times, and then Dick Kaufman were to walk in behind him, having seen me writhing on the floor, and go up to Scott and put his hand on Scott's shoulder and say, Scott, I forgive you. I would start jumping up and down and get mad at Dick. I'd say, hey, that's my prerogative. That's not your place to forgive Scott. I get to say whether I forgive him or not. I'm the victim here. See, that's not his place. And the scripture tells us that ultimately, all of our offenses, all of our sins, all of our self-centered activities are ultimately, even if they harm another person, are ultimately offenses against God. That it's his laws that are being flaunted. That it's his truth and his characters, it's his, it's his character that we're reviling and showing contempt for. And therefore, forgiveness is his to give, and his alone to forgive. And again, what's forgiveness? Well, what if I say to Scott, having jumped up and down on my foot six times, Scott, you let me jump up and down on your foot six times, and then I'll forgive you. Is that forgiveness? No, that's justice. It's retaliation in the sense of eye for an eye. He started it, I'm going to finish it, and forgiveness is not involved in the equation at all. Forgiveness is when you say, I'm going to let go of the offense. I'm not going to hold it against you. I'm not going to retaliate. I'm not going to exact justice. I'm not going to bring vengeance or wrath down upon your head. That's forgiveness. And forgiveness, let it be known, is a costly thing. When another human being Offend, when one human being offends another human being, causes a hurt, when a husband commits adultery against a wife, and there's a hurt there, forgiveness isn't merely saying, that doesn't really matter. No, forgiveness, to really forgive in that situation, is a costly thing. Lewis Smedes, in his book called Forgiveness or Forgive and Forget, has a great chapter entitled, Some Nice Things Forgiveness Is Not. Because he wants to get across that forgiveness is a very valuable thing. And one of those things that he says forgiveness is not is just saying, ah, it doesn't really matter. That's okay that you jumped up and down on my foot. 
And that, of course, is a trivial, almost, example. The kinds of offenses that people do against one another get far greater than that. But when you forgive, what you say is, I'm not going to retaliate. I'm going to take the hit myself. I'm going to absorb the cost. Let's say you go to the grocery store and you have an account at a grocery store and you've run up your bill for a while and you go in and you're about to get more groceries and the grocer, who's the grocer? I don't know the grocers even exist anymore, but the grocer comes up to you and the grocer says, listen, you haven't paid your bill. I can't give you any more groceries. And you say, listen, you know, I don't have a lot of money on me. Can you forgive me my debt that I owe you right now and I promise it will never happen again? Well, first of all, if the grocer's a savvy businessman, he immediately says no, because if he starts doing that with everyone, he gets himself in a lot of trouble. But realize that even if he says yes, he's not merely saying it doesn't matter. His forgiving of the debt involves a cost. He absorbs the cost. That's less money in his pocket because he's forgiven you that debt. And Scripture says that's the way it is in our relationship with God. Because of our sin against God, we're in debt to Him. We owe Him our very lives. That's what sin requires, a life. Hebrews says it one place, that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. That is, a life is required. And even in God's case, therefore, a hit needs to be taken. A cost needs to be absorbed. And that's just what Jesus does. Jesus takes the retaliation. Jesus takes the vengeance upon his own head rather than we getting it upon ours. And you see, that's the whole purpose of the miracle birth that we just finished up celebrating. It was that he might eventually die, that he might take the hit, that he might absorb the cost for all who would believe in him. Forgiveness on that basis is letting go of an offense, letting go of our offenses against God, God letting go of them because Jesus has already taken care of those offenses in his own person. And therefore, there's no retaliation left for us. And when Jesus says to this person, the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, it's pretty clear that he's not just saying the sins you've committed up to now, but he's saying your sins, past, present, and future, once and for all, are absolved. They're taken care of. The verdict from now on, on your head, is not guilty. No more payment will be exacted from you. God lets go of our sin by allowing it to fall on his own son so that we are truly forgiven. That's the meaning of forgiveness. But the final thing that this passage shows us is that Jesus really does have the authority to forgive, that there is a reality to forgiveness as well. And that comes across in his interaction with the Pharisees here, with the teachers of the law, because he answers their question with a question. Actually, he, they never asked the question in the first place. Uh, He just reads their minds. Maybe it was clear to everyone, but apparently he reads their minds. He knows what they're thinking. And so he says to them, listen, which is easier to say? Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven? Or is it easier to say, get up, take your mat, and go home? 
Now, I've usually allowed that question whenever I've read this passage to throw me into deep puzzlement. I don't know if you've done the same thing. Uh, I begin to ask the questions, okay, well, it's about equally easy to say either thing. I can say, get up, take your mat, and walk. I can say, your sins are forgiven. They require about the same amount of syllables, the same amount of breath. They're equally easy to say. Uh, I suppose, actually, for God, they're equally easy to do. Doesn't mean that one doesn't involve a greater cost, although perhaps we can even say that even God's ability to ultimately heal comes from the fact that Christ has dealt with the primary problem that's brought about disease in the first place. But I suppose that either of those things is equally easy to do, that is, to heal a person or to forgive a person. But what Jesus is simply asking here is, which of these statements is verifiable? And in that sense, which is the harder to say? And then it becomes clear that it's obviously harder to say, get up, take your mat, and walk, because people can immediately tell whether you're just blowing hot air or not. Whereas a person saying your sins are forgiven is an unverifiable statement. But Jesus says, so that you might know that I have the authority to forgive sins, so that you might know that I have the authority, frankly, to do the greater thing, the more important thing, I say to you, get up, take your mat, and walk. And the paralytic does just that. He does the lesser thing to show that he has the power, the authority, to do the greater thing. The miracles tell us about Jesus. They tell us that he has the authority to say, son, daughter, your sins are forgiven. Jesus has come away, has come to do away with the effects of sin and to do away with sin. That's what this miracle tells us. That's what it tells us about Jesus, that he has the authority to forgive sins, that that's his purpose in coming, and that he can do that for you and he can do that for me. Because in coming to deal with sin, he's first of all dealt with the penalty of sin and then goes on to deal with the power of sin in our lives, having forgiven us. And there's just a couple of questions left to ask as we end here. The first is this. Have you heard those words yourself? Son, daughter, your sins are forgiven. Has anyone with the authority to say those words said them to you? And you see, there's only one person with the authority to say those words. Well, God the Father and Jesus Christ. Jesus says, I have the same authority on earth as the Father has in heaven. They are the ones. It's God alone. And Jesus, his Son, God incarnate, who can say those words. And have you heard them? I don't mean audibly, but have you heard them in your hearts? It's possible. And notice that Jesus grants forgiveness without this paralytic lifting a finger or saying a thing. It's granted unconditionally. He doesn't do anything to earn it. Jesus gives it to him. And will you come if you haven't heard those words? There's no more important words that you could hear. You need to go away from tonight having heard those words. Come to him, confessing your sin, acknowledging it, asking him for forgiveness. It will be granted. He promises it. But the second question to ask is, do you have your own priorities straight with regards to forgiveness and healing? 
Do you understand the relationship between those things? You know, apparently the people in this passage have forgotten all about the pardon that Jesus has given. By the end of the passage, we're told they see the wonderful thing Jesus has done and they start to cheer and they start to praise God. But what are they praising God for? Apparently, the healing, not the forgiveness that he's granted. At least that's the way it looks. And we need to ask the question, do we make the same mistake? Ultimately, it's more important that your sins be forgiven than that you be healed. Do you believe that? See, I know there are people in this room who have chronic diseases. There's people in this room who have, are dealing with pretty heavy disappointments. And if you don't have an illness now, it's likely that someone in your family might have one. But we need to get our priorities straight. Do we know the greater thing? Have we experienced the greater thing, the forgiveness of our sins? You see, Jesus healed this person only eventually that he might die again. We sometimes forget that, but we don't know anything about this man after he uh, had his sins forgiven and he got up and walked away, maybe leaped out of the room. For all we know, he ran right in front of Jesus' house and a chariot came running down the street and ran him over right then and there. We don't know, but we do know eventually he was going to die. And that's the case for all of us. If you don't have an illness now, illness will come. If you don't have disease now, it will come. If you don't have disappointments now, they will come. And death, which is also inevitable, will come as well. And what we need to know is that we have what's even more important when those things come our way. We need to know the words, son, your sins are forgiven, daughter, your sins are forgiven, and we need to cherish those words, and they need to thrill us more than anything else, because they allow you, when you know those words, to live a life of joy, regardless of your circumstances. Do you have your priorities straight? Do you know those words, your sins are forgiven? That's my prayer for myself, that I might continue to be thrilled at that truth, and for you as well, that you might know those words in the depths of your heart. Let's pray.